Hello, folks. Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We build technology across hardware and software and analytics that's designed to continuously understand the human body. We measure things like heart rate and respiratory rate and heart rate variability and capacitive touch and movement. We provide all that information um, on a dashboard that's going to tell you things like how well you slept, how fast you're recovering, uh, what kind of strain you're putting on your bodies, which hopefully right now hasn't fallen off too much in, in this time of COVID. And uh, in addition, we're doing a lot of research right now around COVID-19. You can listen to some of our previous episodes about how respiratory rate may be a key indicator for whether or not someone has COVID-19. And if you have never joined Whoop or you're not a member, uh, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership by using code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. Our guest this week is Jerome Mollinger from the Duke University Medical Center COVID-19 Research Task Force. Yes, that is a very important task force. And WHOOP has partnered with Duke to study the recovery aspect of COVID-19. What does that mean? It means when a patient who has gotten COVID-19 actually leaves the hospital, what happens to their health? What happens to their recovery? What happens to, in particular, their heart rate variability, which we touch upon a lot? So researchers are putting whoop straps on people admitted with coronavirus, admitted to the hospital, to gain a better understanding of how their bodies are reacting to the disease, both in the hospital and after they're discharged. And then experts at Duke are trying to better predict how certain high-risk patients might respond to the ICU experience. I thought this was really fascinating. I think it's really important work that's being done. I'm glad Whoop is part of it. And Jerome and I discussed really the numerous health complications that they're seeing after someone leaves and is cleared uh, of coronavirus. There's been a lot written about heart implications, about declining heart rate variability, about organ failure. Uh, and it just seems like there's still that we a lot we don't know about COVID-19. So anyway, this is a very powerful conversation. And, uh, and again, I'm proud that WHOOP is playing uh, a small role in helping out researchers understand this disease. Without further ado, here's Jerome. Jerome, welcome to the WHOOP podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So how do you like to describe the work that you're doing right now? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Literally talking about literally the pre and, pre and post-COVID area right now in, in our research here at Duke. Before the COVID, we did our primary research in curative care. So looking at um, different metabolic phenotypes being at risk prior to major elective abdominal surgery or, and or cancer. Right now, we have a complete different kind of way of approaching because the operations here at Duke are minimal. There is no other research done right now. Uh, always focused on COVID. Right now, we're looking at how can we define the systemic metabolic phenotype throughout the infective period, even post-infective, pre and, pre and post-infective period, to define and to dissect more where are people being at risk yet or now, and why is there such a huge correlation with BMI or uh, social status and the worst outcome we're seeing right now being on the vet for a significant period of time and having all kind of issues. Presumably, if you are surviving in a post-survivor COVID, uh, COVID time, which we are not there, because I think that will be a, another big issue. We are right 
end up dealing only with the affected and being on the ICU. But again, looking forward, looking at the what we're seeing right now in use on the second wave, and I think that's very true. I think we should definitely look out for for the for the, for the second wave end of this year or so, beginning next year. But what I'm far more right now worried about is the way we're going to get from our post-COVID survivors. Because that will be people are having multiple organ failure coming from ICU or just not at ICU, having kidney problems, having liver problems, having congestive heart failure, uh, cognition problems, and then going to back, return to work, having issues with quality of life. And if they get sick again, we could have a huge spike again with all admissions and looking at health consumption. Well, there's so much that's interesting about what you just said. Let's start with this idea that after you recover, and I'm you know putting putting recover in quotes as I say that, after yeah. you recover from COVID, this idea that it could come back or it could cause other failures that they didn't see when you were in the ICU. Talk, talk right. a little bit about that. The chance of dying after your ICU admission, and that could be eight to 12 months, is significantly high, around 20, 30%. So that will be the case for the people already there. So if you're surviving, so you think, yes, I managed it, and you still had a lot of comorbidities, and you still have a big issue coming around and making sure that we are taking care of those people afterwards, because I think that's the issue right now. Are we here in the US? Are we able to take care of those patients? It seems amazing, doesn't it? Like how little in some ways it feels like we still know about this virus. I oh, mean, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, that's kind of weird and not weird in a way is that the most of the focus on research goes right now to the vaccine and, and, and looking at uh, atmosphere, uh, uh, all the kind of interventions we can do during your infection on the ICU. But I think that that's, that's good, and I think definitely has to go through, and that it has to have its primary focus. But we have to have another focus in looking where are people being at risk, and can we do even maybe in the uh, admission to the floor, so not yet in the admission to the ICU, but also assessing their uh, at-risk profile. And maybe we can intervene already there, and not making sure that they not get admitted to the ICU, because if you're admitted to the ICU and you get intubated, the uh, ability to wean from the ventilator is presumably very hard if you have hard comorbidities. So what happens then that you have a three, two, three, maybe even four weeks uh, on the vent, which on itself is a huge, 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 huge deal, huge stress for the whole system. Explain that more. So you're saying that you can identify someone who's actually too at risk to go on an ICU? Yeah, that's one of the questions we have. There's also more kind of a... a uh, ethical question we have what kind of score or can you kind of a severity score or can you have a comorbidity severity score when you can say maybe wow maybe you shouldn't go to the ICU and maybe you shouldn't be on the vent because we already make sure if you're going there you will never ever get off the vent and then you have issues in regard to what are you going to do with your uh, with your life um, I think that's, that's, that's the stuff where the intensive care physicians right now are struggling with because that's the thing we don't know well, it reminds me of a paper I read, you know, a journalist did a deep dive in Italy, and this was maybe two, I want to say three weeks ago when they were at the absolute peak and you had doctors playing this game of choosing who they can treat, right? Yes. And so the point you're making, I believe, is that there's some people who are so at risk for the ICU experience or treatment that it's actually not worth it to them to get the ICU treatment. Even if they're in bad shape with COVID, 
you're effectively giving them a cure that may be worse if I'm framing that properly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, I think one of the phrases my, my colleague Paul Wismeyer always says, and I think that, 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 that takes it very well into, into perspective is we have to create survivors and not victims. We're creating victims. If you're treating patients, we already know they're going to be having huge problems in regard to ICU stay and having huge adverse effects and huge complications. Explain what the purpose of an ICU is and what like a ventilator actually does. In essence, it's very simple. What we're trying to do is putting people on the vent is literally just taking over the ventilation and making sure that the, uh, the lungs are completely filled with air and that the, all the perfusion and the oxygen going into the, from, uh, from into the lungs to the system is always guaranteed and that the CO2 removal is always guaranteed. So that gives, literally, we're buying time. What we want to do is, there is a, because we have no cure yet, we cannot give anything. We know for sure that helps. So what we're doing with, uh, with ventilation is just buying time to make sure that the body, if possible, can, can, can recover from this virus, which sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And, and that's the things we just don't know. And the things we just don't know why. For instance, one of, one of the things we saw in the, uh, in the Netherlands was, and I think it's also been seen in the, um, in the New York, population that BMI was very well correlated with adverse outcomes. So people, I think 80% of all admitted in the ICU were in the Netherlands were had a BMI larger than 30. I think the same stuff we saw in, uh, in Italy, but also saw in New York. And one of the, the questions we had was, is BMI such a good predictor of being having an adverse effect on ICU stay? So one of the ethical questions we had in the Netherlands was, can we somehow use BMI as a risk at risk score for saying yes or no being submitted to the icu uh, i think you cannot do that at all because right now we don't know why the bmi is so predictive i think it's kind of a proxy it's so interesting and your point about choosing who to admit into the icu i think is a good one because you know there, there is always this question of is the cure better or worse than the no problem, absolutely right? I think, and that's what the stuff we're trying to find out also, if HRV in the COVID patients, and literally I want to dissect the patients from, literally from just infected going from the floor, from the floor to ICU, from ICU getting intubated, getting extubated, going back to the floor and getting back home, how that trajectory will go. But also looking and assessing patients who are survivors because the HRV could be a very good predictor in the immune response post-COVID. So... And we have to have a ability to, to assess patients in a, in a large amount of people. And just looking here at Duke, where we have a large amount of people going to surgery, around 75,000, 80,000 people here a year, we don't know how many post-COVID patients there will be because we're still having issues with testing at all. So we have to assess them. We have to follow them up also at home to see how they can somehow uh, being guided or being supervised in their training, in their nutrition, in their recovery, etc. Yeah. So you're talking about HRV, which is heart rate variability, which for all the WHOOP members listening will know is the, one of the leading metrics that we use to give you a recovery score every day. And I think what's powerful about this is you're, you're suggesting, I think, that if you could know the heart rate variability and some of these baseline physiological metrics of every person before they walked into surgery, you would have a better understanding of someone's preparedness for that surgery. Is that fair? That's completely right. Yeah. Let's talk about the study that uh, we're doing together and yeah. uh, and that WHOOP is involved in. 
I understand the studies focused on the recovery aspect of COVID-19. So talk about that. We have two parts. One of the parts will be the following up. So we will be giving people uh, who are on the floor admitted to uh, to Duke, uh, so still awake, needing needing oxygen from two, four, five meters or so. To give them a new hoop and to see how they're following up, so we can following up. Sorry, just their... clarify clarify that you're giving it to which people exactly? Uh, people who are being admitted to the Duke Hospital, but on the floor, so okay. not on the ICU. Okay. Also, you have to ask for consent for the specific assessments. So, if you're on the ICU with no family around, uh, we cannot do this. We cannot do consenting. So, we have to make sure that people are aware of the study and they can do consenting also on the floor. And that gives us also the ability to follow them up even if they go to the ICU. So that's the first part. So we have the floor and maybe floor non-ICU and going back home. And if people going back home, then we'll be included to our second um, second study. There will be a post-COVID rehab study. So then we will see what kind of outcomes do we need to have to have a very well-supervised, guided kind of a intervention, which they can do at home. I myself, I'm very curious to see in those patients how looking at the group outcomes, how the strain will, will look like in those patients yeah. from a day-to-day yeah. base. I know my strain. I know what I'm doing right now and what I'm seeing also in the ICU. Yeah, uh, you're wearing a I'm wearing right now. It's kind of a cool thing because I had the ability to see how I did before I went into the rooms because we are assessing patients, three or four patients a day. Uh, just imagine I have to do all my PPE stuff. So I'm, I'm around one hour and a half in the room doing all the assessments. It's kind of a hard, hard, hard research work, but that's fine. I think I'm, I'm proud doing it. Yeah, and it's the ability doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Also, from my point of view, looking at my health and my rest itself, it's, it's very helpful for me to see what I need to do because right, right now we're only looking at patients, but I think it's very, for us, primarily vital, primarily focused that we stay safe also because we have to make sure we get our rest, we did our stuff, we do our training, do our nutrition and all. Uh, and, and I already see in my strain, in my, in my, in my recovery, and also in my um, sleep analysis, is you definitely need a lot of sleep to get back into shape right now. And, and I'm very curious to see how that our subjects and our, our patients will do because sleep hygiene is so important uh, also in regard to doing any intervention at all. So, Well, first of all, very, uh, very proud to have you on WHOOP and the rest of the team on WHOOP and to be doing this study Thank with you. you guys. I think the work yeah. that you're doing right now is so important. How uh, long do we think the study is going to take and, and how many people are we going to do this with? Yeah, that's not a good question. Right now, that's, that's one of the parts we just, we just don't know yet. And um, hopefully right now we're trying to assess in our LEAP COVID study around 200 patients. Yeah. With 100 controls and the controls will be the non-COVID RDS patients. So about 300 people. Yep. So there will be, it will be a significant data set we're going to derive from. And also, and that, that's the most important thing, that we have data set not only from the home environment itself, but we can compare home to floor and ICU. And in some, in some patients also floor, ICU, floor, home. And that will be, that's novel. It's never been done to look into those data sets and how people change. And I'm very curious to see not only the data set at the, in, the, in the absolutes, but more how do the slopes go? How do the trends go? Because that's very typical in our COVID patients that you see around day eight, day 10, uh, where you think it's going well. Uh, you literally are at a, at, a, at a crossroad. You're going to the left and you're going to get better. You're going to the right and you can get worse. And we don't know why. I've actually talked to friends who've gotten COVID-19 and this has happened to them. The phenomenon is 
you get it, you feel the symptoms, it gets progressively better the same way you would get better from any kind of cold and you think you're out the other end and all of a sudden it gets worse or it comes back hard, right? That's what you're describing. Right on. And I believe your point is also that if you're in a certain category of person, a more at-risk person, you could be, maybe it's because you have a high BMI, as you were talking about earlier. Maybe it's because you have a low heart rate variability. That individual uh, could be at even significantly more risk when that comes back. And we have to figure out, we being society, how we're going to treat those people. Exactly. Here's my question with reinfections. Is it actually that you're exposed to one you know, one example of this coronavirus, you get it. You build the antibodies and you go back to your normal life. And then you interact with someone else that also has it and you get reinfected. Is that reinfection or is reinfection this phenomenon of I'm recovering, I'm recovering, I'm recovering, I'm recovered. And then some period of time it comes back. And I think that is one of the questions we, we still need, 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 need to get answered because that will be the maybe one of the important questions we need to have in our upcoming post-COVID area, because the COVID infection will never go away. The virus is there to stay. Of course, we will be having some vaccines for sure, but still, this is not going away at all. And we have to make sure how that kind of immune response or being immune at all and the time frame that will take it and your phenotype take it will give rise to it. Maybe it's also kind of a, uh, you say some, Maybe it's also kind of a viral load that you can get in a specific time frame will give rise to a reinfection. One of the things we we saw, I think there was an article from uh, from China where they say why they think it has a high, if you're being obese or having an end of having high BMI, why you're having such a high chance of uh, getting admitted to the ICU is that the uh, ACE2 receptor is not only in the lungs, but also in the, in the fat cell. So if you have a lot of surrounding fat cells, the ability to have a lot of areas where the virus can hook on is high. So your viral load will also be, in a specific time frame, much higher. What do you think of this phenomenon of, or this concept rather, that if I'm more exposed to this virus, I'm going to have a worse reaction to it? You know, there was a an example, I believe it was in China, this is maybe even in January timeframe, where, you know, young, healthy, 30-something doctor died of, of COVID-19. And part of the explanation yep. was that it was because he was treating COVID-19 patients all day and just got hit too hard with, with the virus. Do you, do you buy that? Does that, does that follow? Uh, I'm not sure. There, there, there are there are some some reasons to 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 believe that the the acuteness of the viral load could be a indicator, uh, and of course, and also looking at myself uh, as a healthcare professional researcher right now at Duke, we are we are the ones who are in front, and also the nurses, I think, even much more that, uh, and also the intubation teams who have all the the aerosolization of the virus being intubated. I'm not sure because again, going back. The testing is not being done right now also from everyone involved in the healthcare profession. So we have to see who is being affected already or and or if we have a good defined test and being valid and being sensitive and precise enough to measuring antibodies, which we just don't, don't have right now. We don't know. We just don't know. It's amazing how little we know yeah. about this. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Now, 
the serology test. I've long felt that that's the biggest miss that we've had, at least in this country, is that we don't have a real understanding of how many people have been exposed to COVID-19. And so as a result, we don't really know what the true fatality rate is of this. Do you agree with that? No, absolutely. And I think it can go down, of course, if we see a lot of people already being uh, being affected with uh, uh, being asymptomatic or... Also, the, one of the questions we have, of course, how you do how do you define asymptomatic? Is asymptomatic just not 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 having any symptoms at all, or having a slight headache, or having a slight uh, uh, sore throat, or or whatever? Because I think, and again, this period of time is still also influenza, it's still it's still flu season, so we have also uh, hay fever people. Yeah, right. Also going around, so we have a lot of bias surrounding people having symptoms with just and, and again the only way to to make sure is is testing we have to be testing those people making sure that it's just a flu or just a high fever hay fever and not not COVID 19. if we discover that a high percentage of the population i don't know what that percentage should be but let's pretend that we rolled out over 300 million antibody tests tomorrow yeah and we discovered that a high percentage of the population had antibodies would it be safe for those people to be out and about again and to no longer be practicing social distancing? Or do you feel that we still don't know enough about this virus to actually say that because you have antibodies, you're fine? I think, I think we still don't know enough at all to make sure that you can make those, those statements right now. One positive outcome that may come from all of this is people, I think, are going to realize how important it is to be fit and healthy. You know, it's, it's not a surprise that when I talk to people about just how scared they are personally about getting COVID-19, the fear level directly correlates to how fit they are. I think there is a level of, uh, of ignorance to that too, right? Because obviously there's so much we don't understand about this thing. But being fit and being healthy and knowing that your body functions properly just makes you approach these moments differently. It, it fundamentally does. And it has a big psychological impact uh, along with everything that you just described about how your body's going to function better. So let's go back to the study for a second. It's coming out right now that roughly one third of COVID-19 patients are developing cardiovascular complications, right? Right. Yep. So one of the goals of this study is to determine the effect of COVID-19 on your cardiac structure and function, as well as body and fluid composition to effectively understand how you're doing after admission to hospital discharge. So let's play this out. If you're wearing a whoop strap during this whole thing, and our audience obviously is pretty familiar with whoop, what might we see in someone's data who has a good recovery after COVID-19? One thing we'd want to see is we don't want to see their HRV stay flat or even increase, right? Coming out of yep. this. Yeah. If you see it start have a meaningful decline when they're supposed to be in a period of recovery, yep. that may be a sign yep. that they're, you know, in that third that's developing a cardiovascular complication. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the acute part. And the, the, the long-term chronic part will be how do you see the slope and the trends throughout a seven-day-a-week period, for instance? Do you see specific changes? And, and I must say, and that's also what we don't take into account, I think, when we're looking at the data from HRV in the ICU and in the floor, 
you also have a specific chronotype. So how does your body respond to specific periods in time on the day, in the, in the morning or in the midday? If you are a post-COVID survivor and doing training at home, and what would be interesting for you to do is to see is how do you quickly respond to your training itself within an hour? And also, how do you produce your hydrobility over a long period of time? Yeah, it's been interesting talking to WHOOP members who have gotten COVID-19 and how much they talk about sleeping during it. You know, just like eight, nine, ten hours in bed a night uh, to try to sleep this thing off. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, maybe I, I don't know the data, but what, what I know over here, what I heard is there's a lot of people who have kind of very intense nightmares and dreams. Mm. What you've definitely been seeing also in your uh, in the group analysis to see how your deep sleep, your REM sleep, and your light and and, and um, will go. We are seeing pretty interesting analysis from that. I, I had some of this is still under embargo because we're doing uh, research. I can't go uh, into as much detail as I would like on it, but we are seeing we are seeing stuff. It's a really good point, and people are having these incredibly high fevers and high fevers you know, can cause hallucinations, they can cause crazy dreams, and that inevitably shows up in your sleep data. I mean, the quick of it is is obviously the quality of sleep looks very different, right? If you look at a typical staging over the course of the night, light, awake, you know, slow wave, REM, and around again, it doesn't look like a normal night's sleep. So we're doing a lot of research on that, and, uh, cool. and that's cool. going to be part of our... See. Yeah, part yeah. of the, the research that we publicize. Well, but super excited about this research with Duke. Look, I think it's amazing what you guys are doing. I'm I'm really proud Whoop's part of this study. And I'm also just really excited to see what the research is that comes out of it. Because to your point, I mean, there's just so little understood from a big picture standpoint about this. Yeah. Now, you've been on Whoop. Tell me, how, how's your data evolved during this moment in time? <laughs> Good question. Now, I, 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 had, I had some drops in my recovery right now. but um, what I, what I was seeing right now, and it was very distinct, is I do my training and all every single day. That, 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 that works fine. I'm very sensitive to my sleep hygiene, so I have to make sure I get my sleep. Yeah. Uh, that that's, that's distinct. If I don't get it, I instantly see my numbers in regard to recovery. I see that changing. Uh, and also also the way I get my lip tree, the ability to get a specific strain during my, during my uh, training itself. So... I myself, as my metabolic phenotype, I see that my sleep hygiene is one of the most important things I need to look into and look after for. And again, as a researcher doing over here, doing the stuff, that's also one of the most uh, issues to get into because I'm starting off here at six o'clock in the morning and we are till eight o'clock in the evening or so. So it's, uh, it's a struggle to get, to get my sleep hygiene in place. But okay, we have to make sure that that's because also I have to be safe and healthy that's important you do man and and your whole team around you does because absolutely, uh absolutely. you know the rest of the country needs you we all need you right now so look thank you for everything that you do right now thank you for everything that your team does uh i know i'm speaking on behalf of all of our listeners and we say that uh we feel fortunate to have you uh supporting this country thank you so much now, if people want to learn more about the Duke Lab or about you or about the study, where can they do that? I think the best way what they can do is follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Twitter is one of the stuff I need to do very, very actively. And uh, I will post all our results very early on and, and give people far more insight in the stuff we're doing over here at Duke. Okay, good. Well, we'll include that in the show notes. Jerome, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Thanks so much.
Thanks again to Jerome for coming on the Whoop podcast and for all the incredibly important work he is doing right now with his team at Duke to fight COVID-19. Make sure to subscribe to the Whoop podcast. Follow us at Whoop or follow me at Will Ahmed. You can find us on all the typical social platforms. And as always, stay healthy, stay green. Thank you for tuning in to the Whoop podcast.